Welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. So today we've got a guest on that I've been really looking forward to speaking to, one of the few founders in Web3 that could be said to have truly blitzscaled and become hugely profitable. So I'm happy to welcome CZ, CEO and founder of Binance, the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange by trading volume. Well, thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having me here. So maybe to just go uh, to summarize your background a little bit, um, at least as I understand it. So you majored in computer science uh, at Montreal, Canada, at McGill. You worked at Tokyo Stock Exchange uh, on the Bloomberg Tradebook, um, also developed um, futures trading software, obviously very relevant to one of the big growth areas at Binance now. 2005, you moved to Shanghai. Uh, you founded Fusion Systems, a high-frequency trading software company. And then in 2013, you joined Blockchain Info. And in 2017, you launched Binance. Uh, you did a $15 million ICO. And in less than eight months, you grew that to the largest cryptocurrency exchange and uh, leading to Forbes uh, declaring you the third richest person in, in crypto. So that, that's, uh, that's, that's a hell of a lot that you, you managed to achieve in you know, a relatively short period of time. But to be honest with you, as I, as I look at that background compared to a lot of other founders in Web3, it seems very logical, right? All the things that you have worked on in the past very logically have led to what you're doing at, at Binance now. Um, I wouldn't, I actually wouldn't use logical to like, from my perspective. Uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think, I think that summary is, re is very accurate. Um, so thank you for, for that summary. Um, but from my perspective, from my personal perspective, it's actually more, it's more, um, uncertain. It, it, it feels to me like yes. all the, all the other entrepreneurs are much younger. If you look at Mark Zuckerberg, um, all these other really young entrepreneurs where it took me literally 20 years to have what people call a overnight success. And while in the, yes. uh, so right now looking back, everyone says, oh, you did this, you did that, that led to this success. But why the, but in the good part of that 20 years, um, when you, when you haven't hit the success, it feels like very much like grinding, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, to me, it wasn't, okay, look, I do all these things, you'll guarantee success. <laughs> so I think I got, I think we got yeah. a bit, I think I got a, I got quite lucky in the last two years, especially in 2017. Um, we, so we did accumulate a, a lot of experience over the years and those experiences somehow um, came together into a good product. And then we had a good team uh, and we got lucky with the market. Um, the market timing was good. Uh, cryptocurrency was growing like crazy in 2017. And we caught that wave, and uh, we 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 became the sort of number one cryptocurrency exchange. So um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't that logical to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a similar age to you, so I I can I can appreciate uh, that perspective, and I think it's it's also you know whenever I've heard you speak on panels or on other podcasts, you've always been very humble, and again I can hear you talking about luck. I think maybe that's something to do with age, right? The, the older you get, perhaps the more you appreciate luck. Um, perhaps if, if you were to experience success, overnight success, um, when you're very young, you, you might think it's down to pure skill. Yeah, I think, um, well, I think, that, well, how you define luck, uh, I think everyone have a different understanding or definition of it. I think everyone, luck, well, the, the simple version of luck or opportunities come to everyone, whether you can grab it or not, uh, it's really up to you. Um, and I always, the other phrase I always say, well, I said less now, is um, hard work creates luck. So, um, uh, so there's a lot of hard work that we put in, uh, very, like very obviously. We, we, I think we work harder than most other people in the industry even. And um, um, so the luck, actually, the luck aspect of it uh, is actually quite equal to everyone. We say we are lucky, but all the other exchange, well, there's plenty of other exchanges in the space uh, in 2017. Um, and uh, in 2017, every single day, there's 200 new exchanges. 
So uh, the fact that we are able to rise to the top also, uh, um, we also worked really hard to sort of grab onto that luck. Um, so, but we, we, we needed the luck to, to, to sort of get there. So I think there's different definitions of luck, but um, I think uh, chance uh, do, uh, do provide, uh, is definitely uh, a big factor. So uh, a, a, the similar team working equally hard or more, even harder uh, equally smart. Um, if their timing was a little bit off, if they were working on a slightly different uh, app, uh, opportunity, um, they maybe so there's a little bit of a randomness. But um, uh, just uh, just because there's luck doesn't mean it's hundred percent luck. So um, I think there's yes, but I do think luck uh, is a big factor. Yeah, I mean it's interesting you say in, in 2017. You know there were hundreds of exchanges being launched, um, and it's going to be really interesting to understand what the insight was that that led you to to, to found Binance um, and what you focused on as the edge. But it, I just want to kind of focus on that the hard work piece because I know it's a bit of a cliche now, right? The idea that obviously you're Chinese Canadian. I don't know which you identify with more strongly, but there is this cliche that. Chinese work ethic is is kind of going to outwork the West, but I you know I don't know I don't know whether you see that as part of your identity and and your drive, or whether that's just that's just innate to you as uh, and, and would be applicable to anybody in Canada as well. Um, I think um, there's a little bit of uh, there's a little bit of everything. Uh, so let me explain this. You know, uh, there's a couple of topics which are quite interesting there. I do think there is a, a difference in the working culture between um, Chinese and Western worlds. Um, there are some, uh, I mean, generalization is quite dangerous, but there are some, um, some general, like just sort of generalized um, differences. So uh, for example, most of the internet companies in Beijing, they work what we call 996. So uh, nine to nine every day, uh, uh, six days a week. So they only take one day off. They work 12, hour, 12 hours a day, and that's standard. Um, and there's no overtime. There's no discussion of overtime, uh, overtime pay, all, uh, all these benefits. It's just that's what everybody do. And um, also, for example, the Chinese internet companies are quite famous for their lights on overnight. So if you look at the Baidu office in, in China, in Beijing, uh, in, in their building, the, the lights are always bright um, throughout the night. So basically, people just uh, people people do stay overnight uh, every day. There's people staying overnight, so um, uh, there is that culture. There's some other differences as well. Um, the Chinese guys typically uh, don't argue, don't uh, don't uh, don't don't debate, don't talk that much. Um, they just do whatever the boss say, um, and sometimes it's wrong. Some, so sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Whereas um, uh, usually, um, uh, so basically, if you get a good boss, then it's really great. If if the boss is wrong, then the whole team is going uh, like into the ditch, uh, and then they have to climb out of it. So uh, whereas in the Western uh, cultures, people do uh, have a much, I would say, a much balanced or healthier uh, working style. The 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 nine nine six style is really is really tough, and. Um, in the Western uh, in the Western cultures, um, the team members will wo- will voice their opinions quite strongly because they were taught with the freedom of speech, uh, everyone's equal, etc. So uh, there's there's that big team mentality uh, that's there. So the execution speed, to be honest, for uh, for some of the Western teams in general, um, are slower, but they usually come up with with a better polished products. So when the products uh, from uh, the Western teams uh, are out, they, the user experience is usually quite simple, it's quite tested, uh, it's polished. Whereas the Chinese guys work really hard, work really fast, but they release stuff that's less polished, less tested, more bugs. Um, the UI is typically a li- little bit more uh, clump, uh, sort of um, very packed, a lot of information uh, on, on one screen, etc. So this this like but again all of those uh, all of the all of these are generalizations. Um, there are exceptions. There are exceptionally uh, there are exceptions in, in in every culture, I'm sure. But I we we do see those differences. Uh, one of the things we got very lucky on, uh, given that I um, I was born in China, but I grew up, grew up in Canada, then worked in the United States, and then Japan, um, and then uh, Taiwan, uh, sorry, and then Hong Kong and Singapore. So I I've been on both sides of both sides of the Pacific um, uh, and both sides of the world. So my personality is a little bit of a, a mix of both. So I, I recognize that very, very clearly. And um, 
Um, I we I try to structure the team so that uh, the, the the team uh, is kind of a hybrid between the Chinese as well as the Western culture. Interesting. Um, there are there are still a lot of problems even with that hybrid, um, but there's quite a lot of advantages that we can achieve from that. So uh, yeah, um, so Binance is very unique. In I think Binance is probably the most unique company in that way, in the sense that. If you look at all the Chinese internet companies, there's probably only one company that's more international than us. Uh, well, their product reach is more international than us, which is TikTok. Uh, so TikTok is a Chinese internet company that have a product that's really, really international, but their team is all in China. Whereas Binance is one of the very few companies where we actually started in China, we moved out of China completely, and then we have teams all over the world, and our product is uh, our product coverage is very, very is very evenly spread around the world. Yeah, that's really interesting perspective. Actually, I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, and so, how many people are you now in in terms of employees and contractors? I think we are nine hundred sixty today, and uh, we're yeah, we're growing. We're, we're adding like a, a hundred people a month or so right now. And and as you say, they're they're pretty distributed now, right? So um, split between, I guess, US, Europe, and and parts of Asia. Yes, um, the team's very spread out. I think we we count as fifty plus countries, and they move around all the time as well. So, you know, well, not not so much now, but uh, they typically are fairly nomad. Right. I mean, there's there's definitely a lot that I want to unpack. A lot of founders that will be listening to this, you know, aspire to that level of scale. But obviously, uh, I mean, to me, who's probably only ever managed uh, at max 100 people, it sounds like a big headache that <laughs> that many people um, to, to, to coordinate in, in such a distributed fashion. But clearly, it, it's worked to your benefit in, in allowing that reach. Um, but I, I really want to kind of just step back a bit and, and go to that genesis point. What was what was the insight that that made you decide that you were going to start start the company at uh, what would have you been then? Thirty nine years of age, I say. So re- relatively uh, late as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, so I left my Bloomberg job uh, in two thousand five. So I think I was twenty seven at the time. After working Bloomberg, I know I'm not a corporate guy. Um, I got I got promoted pretty quickly in Bloomberg. Like um, I think I got promoted three times in t- in less than eighteen months, uh, from a from a from a developer position to like a, the uh, head of a Bloomberg Trackbook Futures, um, and as a young Asian guy um, uh, in New York, so that was quite an interesting uh, experience. But I knew that um, I'm not a corporate guy. Um, I, I I do enjoy my work experience in Bloomberg very much, and but and Bloomberg is a very well run company, but there are still aspects of the corporate uh, uh, bureaucracies or structures that I know I'm not a fit for. So I I knew then in my heart that I'm going to be a entre- startup entrepreneur. So left in left in 2005, I was like uh, 27, um, and then um, uh, doing startups and struggling um, and then. St- like when you do startups, you always think, oh, I'm going to hit it and you're going to make millions of dollars and all this <laughs> great stuff. Of course, real life is a lot harder. So struggled for uh, uh, struggled quite a bit for like almost 20, uh, 10, 15 years uh, at different. And this was F- Fusion Systems was one of the one of the main ones, right? This yes. high frequency trading software company. Yeah. Yes. And Fusion Systems is also quite an interesting company. I partnered uh, with five other guys. So there's six partners. I was the youngest one. Uh, the second youngest one is seven years older than me. And all five of them are uh, Caucasians. So like um, like white, uh, blonde uh, people. So I've always interacted with a multi-culture as kind of teams. Um, so, and also uh, quite a lot of my work style are, are, are actually shaped by Western uh, working cultures. So, um, from then, so like from then, for the from twenty seven to thirty nine, twelve years, I was always doing startups, uh, trying one thing or another. I did join a bunch of other startup companies. Um, so I did that fusion for eight years. So from two thousand five to two thousand thirteen, I was doing fusion systems. Uh, came across Bitcoin in two thousand thirteen, and then um, I asked my partners if they want to get into Bitcoin, but uh, I was doing a cryptocurrency exchange. Uh, they said no, it's it's going to take too long to do a new product. I said, okay, fine. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave and then do my own thing. They said, fine. Coincidentally, they are they are now building cryptocurrency exchanges as well. So it's kind of interesting. <laughs> but um, anyway, and, so- and in that journey, did you did you find the um, 
a different experience being a sole founder versus a co-founder. Obviously, you've had the whole spectrum there, presumably of a couple of co-founders all the way to five or six. That's a lot of a lot of founders. I imagine a very different experience. Yes, I think uh, I uh, I think uh, there is a uh, quite a bit of difference. Um, so I think the founder dynamic is really really important for startups uh, because um, one thing that we got away with in Binance is that the, the decision time is very very quick. Uh, so uh, there's a very clear path into decisions. So uh, I typically sort of uh, say we want to spend two percent of time on decisions and ninety eight percent of time on execution. Uh, whereas in uh, in the previous startup infusion systems, there were six partners. Um, there's a back then we're using email with a mailing list at partners at fusion systems dot something. Um, there was just people just spending hours and hours a day on this on this <laughs> on this internal partners mailing list to talk debating about stuff. Um, I thought that was number one. That was unproductive. Uh, most of the decisions require a sort of committee, or it kind of ran it ran a little bit like um, it ran a little bit like a communist regime to me. Like uh, nobody uh, nobody really got fired, um, and everyone shared what everyone else brought in. So it wasn't it wasn't really a capitalist internally in a sense. It's good for, in some. It's very high psychological security, and it's very high, relatively high cohesion. But there's a lot of discussions. I thought that was very um, uh, inefficient. So uh, with Binance, I was very careful, especially in the early days, to maintain. I told all my team, look, I'm gonna res- I'm, I'm gonna reserve the final say, uh, even if I don't like, in, even though in most cases I don't use it. Um, but the, uh, but then that kind of uh, goes down to the team. Um, if a person is willing to make a decision and take risk accountability for it, um, they just make it and they execute. So I think that helps quite a lot in the efficiency. The problem is if you get an inexperienced founder uh, or, or like you, well, basically you have to judge yourself. If you're not able to make some some of the really tricky decisions yourself, then it may be better to get a couple of co-founders so that you can bounce ideas off and kind of discuss. Uh, so there's, there's trade-offs. Um, so, uh, so also my personality, even though I have the I have that authority in the early days in uh, in Binance, but I I'm always quite respectful of other people's opinions. So I'm not really sort of a dictator uh, in, uh, in, in, a, in a bad way. So um, I was very cautious of that. So I think there are different structures that work diff- for different styles. But if you are able to sort of make relatively good decisions and have a very clear path. Um, and have the crest, uh, uh, sort of a, a, what we saw called a charisma to attract a strong team, then you can execute very quickly if you have a more of a single founder structure. Well, not a, I wasn't a really single founder. There's like, um, there's like five or six other guys that kind of, uh, we, we did this together. But it was very clear that if there was a debate, um, I, will hold the final, I will hold the final say. Um, I did not. I didn't use that power quite a lot, uh, but that really simplified the decision, like the decision time and decision cycles. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It was a benevolent dictatorship, right? And I think, you know, from the the people that I've been exposed to in Binance, they're all highly competent, capable people. Um, and so clearly, you know, you found a way that that uh, manages to both attract and uh, keep and retain good people, whilst at the same time. Um, reducing, as you said, that overhead of of decision making. So, so what was the what was the insight that led you specifically to found Binance? Because I mean, you've you've clearly very much focused on on product and and executing, and and arguably you've out executed everybody. Um, that, of course, is in part this this managerial style, as you say, this heavy focus on execution. But specifically, what was the insight? Um, that led you to think that Binance could have an edge? Um, so uh, even back in 2013, when I first got into the industry, um, the idea when I joined blockchain.info, um, the idea of running a crypto to crypto exchange uh, surfaced. So we're kind of viewing, look, if, you, if you're in the cryptocurrency world, you can just change different type of cryptocurrencies. And then there's fiat exchanges that change from fiat to Bitcoin. And so that idea was uh, was there in 2013. But we look at the market, um, the industry was called the Bitcoin industry back then, not the blockchain industry. So the market was too small. In 2015, uh, we actually I, uh, we actually looked at it again. We had, there were discussions about, again, whether we want to start a crypto to crypto exchange. Um, but even in 2015, Polonex was there and um, doing decent business, but not super big. 
I think uh, I I don't remember B tracks, but I think B tracks was around, but but they were they were just too small to be noticed by like an Asian sort of community. And then in 2017, um, they op- we looked at the opportunity again, um, and uh, Polonex has huge volumes, and B tracks is coming up very quickly. Um, and we calculated each one of them are probably like doing each each one of them are doing like hundreds of millions uh, of trades a day. Um, not quite in the billions, but their their fees are quite high. They charge like two percent, two point five percent. So so effectively, they're making like a couple million dollars a day in in, uh, in, uh, in revenues, and that's a large that's a pretty substantial business. So we felt that um, uh, the market the market size is the market is there. Um, and then we sort of analyzed the opportunity. Uh, both Speedtrax and Polonex, uh, the two crypto to crypto exchanges, the two largest uh, crypto to crypto exchanges are larger than all the fiat exchanges. And they're only based in the US and they only have English interfaces. They only have web interfaces and they don't have, um, uh, they don't really have customer support. Like you basically you submit a ticket to them. It takes two weeks to two months to get uh, a response while, while, your, while your, your account may be locked or your, your cryptocurrency may be sitting on the account. So we felt that, and the uh, and we look at the products. The products uh, are not uh, well designed. Like for example, the trading page, you have to scroll back up and down to place a trade, um, and uh, the whole experience wasn't that wasn't that strong. Uh, uh, given the experience that we have uh, in building trading products, uh, we know that we can build a product with much faster uh, matching engine, so that the user experience is very smooth. Uh, we redesigned the screen so that it fits on one page. People didn't have to scroll back and forth to trade, and everybody copied us. And uh, we we were the first ones to say, "Look, uh, you will get a response uh, within 24 hours for any ticket you raise." Um, that was a big improvement. Now we moved it up, and then everybody copied us. Um, the service for the entire industry improved. Um, and then we now we're saying, "Look, you're going to get a response within two hours." And we have. When we launched, we launched in four languages. We expanded the interface into 16 languages. We now offer customer support in about 10, language, 10 languages as well. Um, and we focused, we have a mobile app. Now everyone has one. Um, and uh, we also protect our users better. Um, some of the crypto assets you store on exchanges generate what we call gas or interest. And we were the first ones to split that interest, or to give that, or not split, just distribute, distribute that interest to the user so that they get it. Whereas before the exchange doesn't distribute that um, at all, so we uh, we analyzed the opportunity there. We thought there's quite a big, quite a lot of room for improvements, and we said uh, let's do all of those things, um, and we will have a pretty good shot at it uh, at becoming a pretty significant exchange. Honestly, if you ask me in 2017, I would say two to three years to become the world's number one exchange uh, if we're lucky. Um, but it happened in about six to seven months. So, uh, but um, when analyzing the market, we we saw there was clear room for improvements. I think Peter Thiel said, like, if you if you te- if you can ten x it, then do it, right? Uh, so I thought it wasn't may or may not be ten x, but it's definitely more than three to five x. So we said, no, uh, um, uh, let's do it. Yeah. So we were speaking to um, Kyle of Multicoin on the podcast, and um, I think he made a, a fair assessment, which was you guys have probably released more fintech products than any company on the planet, let alone crypto company, but any any company. Um, so, uh, and, and I can imagine that to be very, very true. So in that sense, obviously innovating, being a founder and innovating in Web3 is an order of magnitude more complex than a normal startup for a number of reasons. Um, the, the two most obvious ones for me, I would imagine in the context of Binance is one, being a public company day one um, because of the ICO. Um, and I think a lot of projects have massively underestimated what's involved in being a public company and, and probably finding out the hard way why many companies stay private for so long. And uh, the second one is navigating the, the regulatory environment, um, which is still incredibly gray um so on that kind of on that second point you know how as an innovator how have you approached regulation and i think in in recent years we've seen um what's happened when a company like libra has uh has taken a different approach they've been severely restricted and arguably that the, the project's been potentially killed off forever yeah yeah um, sure. I, 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 yeah. So I think there's a lot of mis, misunderstanding about Binance's approach to regulation. 
Um, I think the fundamentally, uh, there are some differences uh, in how we operate or how we view a company uh, or, or, or an organization. I don't even use the, the word company that often because I think that's a relatively old concept that's tied into a specific mindset, which we uh, don't really operate the same way. So most companies, um, the founder is uh, sitting in some country and he's usually thinking about his home, home country. And he's going to develop the product, test it in home, home city, home uh, pr- uh, state, province, and then sort of uh, get the country first and then move into a different geographic location um, and expand that market. Um, so and then go international kind of that way. Whereas the Internet made that a lot easier to not to, not to do that anymore. But if you uh, so if you look at TikTok, right, so now they can they have a very simple, uh, not a very simple, they have a relatively simple product concept. They executed really well, and uh, everybody around the world had the same need to shoot a video about themselves, and they can expand globally. But when you start to charge money for it, when you start to have a business model, then uh, you are tied into fiat on-ramps. Like the, our current payment methods are different in each country. So this is probably why, like, look, you get bank accounts in different countries, um, and then you some countries use credit cards, some countries use cash. Some countries use a mobile payments like WeChat or, or mobile money in Africa. So there's a lot of differences. Whereas, uh, but the internet already have allowed companies to be much more international. But with cryptocurrencies and blockchain, that easiness is increased by another tenfold. So um, Binance started as, started as a crypto cryptocurrency uh, exchange, and um, we didn't touch fiat. So anybody around the world can do a blockchain transfer, um, deposit Bitcoins and buy, start buying BNB um, and all other cryptocurrencies. So uh, that actually allowed us to not operate in a specific country at all. So the, the, the concept of a country becomes much fuzzier. And, uh, uh, and also given my personal experience being like moving around these different countries, working in different countries before this, I like I'm pretty comfortable picking up like a suitcase and move to a different country. I can live in I can live in most countries for um, for a very extended period of time. I'm not I'm not like okay I have to be in this city. All my contacts are in here, so I don't have that sort of a tight downness where most other founders don't have. So when we look at the business, we said well, okay, so we this business is going to be we're going to do it around the world. We're just not we're not going to do it in one country. We're going to do this in the, around the world. And if it happens that some countries have really high compliance regulatory requirements, which are very expensive to do because you need a bunch of lawyers, you need to apply for a lot of things. There's a time opportunity cost to it. There's a legal cost to it. Uh, there's a compliance team cost to it. Um, and to be, to be honest, look, today, if you want to start a cryptocurrency exchange in the United States, it's probably going to cost you $10 million to get all the licenses. So as a, as, as a, as a, as a startup company, then that's not a really viable option. Um, and it's going to take a year. So unless you can raise quite a bit of money and um, and then do, do a big band approach, that's usually not a most entrepreneurs are not are going to be ruled out. So when we started, we, we raised 15 million dollars, but we didn't want to spend 10 million dollars on, on compliance for one country. We said, well, there's already B tracks and Polonex in, in America. Let them take that market. We're going to we're going to focus on Asia, Europe and other 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 play, Africa, uh, other places. So, um, and then if one country has strong regulations uh, that's prohibiting exchanges like China, we say, fine, we're going to leave the country. Uh, we're just not going to touch that country. So we respect the rules, but we are very flexible in choosing which, where we operate. So a lot of people misunderstood that for uh, regulatory arbitrage or, um, or, or dodging regulation. We're not dodging regulation. We're just like, look, the, uh, uh, even United States is 20% of the global GDP. Um, but there's still 80% of the GDP outside of the U- United States. The, the market is bigger outside. So we said, well, uh, so let's, let's, let's leave the United States alone for a while. And then, um, so we've grown, especially uh, in, in that way. But in our, in, in our mind, we're not avoiding regulation. We're just going to the places. We're looking at the whole world. We're looking at which places are, are, have favorable regulations. So we went to the countries who have favorable regulations to our industry and grown from there. And then once we reached a certain size, we said, well, U.S. is a pretty big, big market. It's going to cost $10 million to get all the licenses, but we, we can now afford it. And we have a large team. Uh, we now can spend money to, to do that. And we find a partner who knows how to do that. 
and do that later. So the order of things are a little bit different given our mentality and approach, uh, but there's a lot of misunderstanding that we uh, dodge regulation, but on the contrary, we are fully complying in every place we operate. So um, we just we, we just that we, we just view the world as many different choices in terms of countries that we could operate, and we're pretty we're pretty flexible to to be in any one of them. We're not married to a single one, especially in the early days. So that's really the difference. Uh, where I think, given the sort of more advancements of uh, of uh, internet and blockchain technologies and cryptocurrencies. That's gonna. That trend is gonna be much, much more apparent in the next few years. Yeah. So in a, in a way, you're kind of like a, a proto uh, na- native internet organization. So how far do you think that will go? So obviously now we've got all this new decentralized financial infrastructure. You now have an increasingly maturing uh, stack around DAOs. Um, do you think what kind of time horizon, or if at all? Do you think it's possible that there will be a generation that will own more wealth digitally than they ever will physically and you know potentially will never work for a company in their entire life? Uh, I absolutely think so. If you look at the sort of crypto Forbes or rich list, all of them have more digital assets than they have in real life. Um, if you look at guys like Vitalik, um, he's very lean on his lifestyle. I'm relatively lean on my lifestyle. I don't own anything. Uh, I don't have a car. I don't have a house. Um, I don't have boats. Um, so um, I, I don't need those things. Um, I can rent them when I need when I need one, and I don't have to take care of it when I don't need it. Um, so I think, well, at least from my perspective, or the friends that I interact with, there's a very high tendency towards not owning anything, especially anything physical. Um, if you own anything physical, it's really hard to move around. It's really hard to take with you. And when you got to sell it in a big hurry, um, you actually don't. Uh, if you own a house, a house actually keep value pretty well. But when you got to sell it in a big hurry, uh, you, uh, the liquidity is very poor. It, it takes months to find a buyer and you got to pay a lot of taxes, all the, go through all the procedures. Whereas, look, if you have Bitcoin, you don't have to carry anything. I think there's, I definitely think there's a much stronger tendency towards much less physical ownership and much more digital ownership. And I think, uh, given that, I'm very confident in the cryptocurrency or blockchain industries. So, if we then go back to this other second challenge or or, or complexity of being a, a Web three startup or a decentralized startup that has raised money, not. Um, through equity, but through an ICO, and that kind of making you a, a public company. You're you're by far one of the more active, responsive CEO founders in the space. On Twitter, I see you uh, personally responding to both requests, complaints, really quickly. But what is what is the unique requirement? What is different about being a founder in in that context? Yes, I think that this is a very good point. It's very different. Um, so this is, yeah, I think you understand this in, in a lot of depths already. Uh, it's already clear. Um, many other founders don't understand this. With, when you raise money publicly, it um, th- doesn't matter if you do it on the blockchain, ICO, IEO, um, whatever. Uh, or, uh, but um, when you raise money from a large number of people, say a few hundred or a few thousand uh, people, um, you are effectively a public company. Uh, now I take the word public a little bit loosely, not a not like a publicly listed uh, traditional definition yes. on like NASDAQ, but effectively you are a public company. Um, and um, given, um, so for me, given such a high number of people who have invested in us, I feel an obligation to let them know what's going on. Um, it's good and bad. So my personality before Binance was actually not such an, uh, I, was, I would say I'm more of an introvert. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> And uh, I'm, uh, and also um, there, there are people who are hubs and there are people who are spokes. Uh, the hubs usually know a lot of people. They interact with a lot of people. They're very outgoing. I'm not a hub. Uh, I'm definitely one of the spoke type person. So I actually don't interact with that many people, um, et cetera. So I kind of view myself as an introvert uh, to some extent. But from a CEO perspective, yes, I think I'm definitely more extrovert from the CEO job position compared to most other CEOs because as soon as we finished the ICO, I figured out well, now I got I got to give weekly updates. Um, everyone's curious about what's going on. Uh, everyone uh, and there's a token that's traded live, so uh, the BNB token is traded live on our own exchange and on some other exchanges. Um, so people are very uh, people need more information. And also, 
there is pressure. Uh, so when we, after the ICO, when we first launched uh, BNB on our own exchange on the first day, the first two weeks, the price actually dropped below ICO. And uh, of course, a lot of people are complaining. Uh, there, were, there were even threats. Um, but regardless of those, <laughs> I feel I, I, that's the highest pressure period of two weeks of my life because I felt very bad that thousands of people believed in me, gave me their money, and suddenly they're, 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 all, they're all in a loss. Um, so that two weeks was really, really tough. So after that, um, or even in those two weeks, I, we were like pushing out new features and trying new things. Um, but it, uh, it took literally two and a half weeks to uh, to sort of uh, push the pro- sort of to to to, to reverse the sort of a, a drop trend. And how, and how do you how do you emotionally and operationally detach from you know one one of the complaints about being a publicly listed company is, is that everybody starts watching the, the, the share price and they start having much more short-term thinking. So how do you detach both as a as a human being emotionally from that and then operationally um, from that pulling you away from more strategic decision-making? Yes. So there, uh, there's a couple of ways I do that. Luckily, two weeks after the ICO, the price went up to about 10x at the ICO price. So uh, that that really uh, uh, removed a lot of the pressure from a pricing perspective. And right now, BNB is about it's like uh, fifteen dollars. So it's right now it's one hundred fifty x the ICO price of it two and uh, two and a half or well, almost three years ago. Two two and two uh, two and a half. So years that helps ago. a little bit. So uh, so then uh, yes, the price still fluctuates, but that's that's just market fluctuation. Um, if you if you if you buy at a, at a high point and it, it fluctuates. There's not a whole lot I can do, but I'm I'm pretty comf- I'm pretty comfortable to say, look, uh, we raised 15 $15 million for about half of the total t- uh, uh, token supply, and uh, that fifteen million dollars is worth about a billion dollars right now. So, um, so, um, uh, so I'm quite comfortable. So once we do, so once once we got out of that trench, uh, that pressure is more or less gone. There's still price fluctuations, but. Um, there's some differences between having a token and a publicly listed company, uh, like a NASDAQ or a NYSE type, where they have quarterly earning calls, and that's what everyone focus, focuses on. So they have a real quarterly pressure, whereas uh, in a more free market, yes, there are people, there's a spectrum of people, some of them are very short-term price-driven, and if they buy yesterday at $15 and today drop to 14 um, they they uh, like uh, they'll be really pissed. But there's there's also a lot of long term holders. So um, and the uh, after so after uh, after 10x, uh, I started not focusing on the price. I started just focusing on deliver more and more products because I know that there's we really can't control the price. But with the way we with the way we would influence it is just to build more products that people use. So um, I've been much more focused on that. So. Uh, luckily for me, uh, for us right now, the token price is so much higher than the ICO price that we don't have that pressure. Um, but the price still fluctuates. It still impl- in, uh, have a little bit of a psychological impact. But at the same time, I'm in this in- industry for the long term. I um, I want to build Binance into a company that lasts 10, 50, 100 years, um, way beyond uh, when I before I uh, bef- uh, way beyond my retirement, etc. So uh, I have a much longer term uh, view for this. So I'm less concerned about the short term fluctuations. We got out of the trench. Most people who, all the early investors made money. The late investors will, uh, will continue to work hard. So I focus much uh, and will continue to work hard and build out the product. So I focus much more on those aspects. So that's how I kind of deal with it. Um, and uh, a lot of other funders are too, uh, especially the short-term focused funders, um, they're usually very affected by price. Um, they're thinking about how to cash out, uh, where do I, when do I sell my bit of the, uh, my own token or not? Uh, whereas we don't think about those kind of things. Uh, we, um, yeah, so, uh, so I think those are the ways to sort of just get away from that. Yeah. And so now you're, you know, market leader, you're the one with the target on your back and you've reached a scale where, you know, you can't help but be slowed down a little bit just by sh- the sheer complexity of the business, the amount of people that you have going. How do you how do you manage that transition to avoid becoming the the kind of slow, uninnovative incumbent? <laughs> yes. So um, I don't have a. To be honest, we're still trying to figure that one out. Um, that's a, <laughs> that that is a very real problem we are facing today. Um, I do feel a, the one thousand people organizations 
nowhere near 10x faster than when we, when we were 100 people. Uh, probably not even 5x faster. So when we're 100 people, we can do things a lot faster than we can do right now. Um, so that's a problem uh, that uh, as we are growing, we are now uh, we now have to solve. Um, I I wouldn't say we I definitely would not say we solved it already. We're definitely struggling uh, and uh, fighting with it. Um, there are uh, problems internally. Uh, there are uh, with uh, less e uh, inefficiencies, more sort of more uh, more discussions, more communications, more debates, and less execution. Um, and uh, but um, one of the ways I do try to well, I've kept trying to um, push out in Binance is that uh, I want many smaller teams. So I want many small independent teams that can do this that can do most of the stuff on their own. So um, I want to I want each team to sort of have some clear very high level metric uh, for output uh, output targets um, such as like number of users, market share. Um, and um, revenue, if the business generates revenue. So those are typically three numbers asked for the each independent sort of business units, what, what, what we call internally. And they're focused around a product? Those business units are normally focused, yeah, okay. So they're kind of like a startup within Binance. Yes, so for example, so each team is relatively independent. So the futures team is very independent from the SPAR team. Uh, they even have a different matching engine. Um, and um, the margin team is different from that. Um, the um, Academy team, the Wallet team, uh, Wazirac team, the CM's Coin Market Cap team—they're all very independent. So um, uh, they're the good part about this is they each have their sort of their own thing. So they are still operating like a mini startup. Um, they uh, at the same time they try to collaborate with each with other people through like very clearly defined interfaces. Uh, to be honest, it's not working too well right now. To be to be very frank. Um, what, what I find is if there's a project that requires cross business unit collaboration, then it kind of breaks down. So if we want to release a feature that's common to uh, spot futures, margin, and whatever else, um, it's much harder to push. Uh, whereas if it's just within futures, they want to launch, launch a new feature, they do it very quickly. So um, we're still struggling with different type of uh, uh, structures, but it's very, but to me, I think the solution, even though we have not proven that it fully works, uh, is that small independent business units around specific products, like high independence, um, high power, uh, and uh, high accountability. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think, um, I mean, in a way, you are you are looking for entrepreneurs within the business. And um, this was actually going to be my next question. So I guess both internally, um, so the people that you're you're hiring to build these these businesses, these new product lines, and then also in the startups that you you've backed through IOs on the on the platform. What is it that you look for in founders? You know, as a founder yourself, uh, what is it that you look for in others? Sure, um, I I think I develop. So I think one of, one of my strengths probably is a good judge of character. Um, I've like, I'm not that young anymore. Uh, so I've over the years, I've developed a set of methods to judge character. Um, I look for people, number one, who share our vision, who actually believes in cryptocurrency and, um, and believes in blockchain, understands technology, understands the economics in the world, understands what kind of problems cryptocurrency solves. Uh, so that's kind of the mission vision um, part of it. Um, I look for people with similar values or what I call principles. So how do they make decisions in tough times? Um, how do they balance the benefits or conflicts of benefits? Uh, you can make a decision that uh, favors yourself very heavily by hurting, well, by uh, unfairly unfair to others, or you can do the reverse. How do they make decisions in this sort of tr uh, tougher times? Um, how do they celebrate successes and failures? Um, and um, and how capable, like what kind of experiences they have as an entrepreneur? Um, for the business we acquired that already have users, that's much easier because they already built some, if, if, if something has a large number of users, then they already built something that has value to a large number of people. And then uh, the last thing is really actually like sort of technical expertise. Not all the, not all the business owners, need, uh, business unit owners needs to be technical, uh, but they need to know their stuff. So those are sort of the areas I really, I look for. Yeah, so, uh, and ethics is really, really important. Um, I think basically, we kind of say we're operating in a trustless society because of the blockchain, but actually, I think trust and credibility is super important. So, um, yeah, those are the things I look for. So it's interesting you mentioned M&A. Obviously, as you're now looking to grow, you can do that through internal innovation 
or acquisition. How do you strike that balance between deciding whether you, you, you acquire something and try to integrate it into the business or you try to develop it internally? Um, I think basically, uh, well, the preference usually is if we can do it internally and we have high confidence of doing it, then doing it internally is usually faster and cheaper and more manageable. And um, the next thing would be to say, okay, um, uh, let's acquire some, uh, well, uh, let's acquire the, in the M&A space, there's a, there's a, there's a different spectrum as well. Um, you can do aqua hires of younger, uh, younger, less developed teams or less developed products or companies, and then just, just sort of bring them into the fold. How early that, that, that should be is very tricky. It's like kind of dependent on the, on the, on their team as well. Uh, some funders, they do start up because they want, they don't want to be part of a big organization. Um, and Binance is not super big, but not super small. And um, some funders already have built out the products a bit, they have users, et cetera. And then that's, that would be a more costlier uh, or higher valued acquisition. So we do a bit of both. Um, so we do, we do we, in that spectrum, um, we do everything. But fundamentally, it's, it, it, is it worth it? Is it valuable? And can we do it ourselves or not? Can we, sometimes we, we obviously always also com- consider, can we compete? For example, if there's a uh, if there's another fiat local fiat exchange in a certain country that we're not we don't have a strong presence in, and we will consider, hey, can we can we hire a few guys, put in, put them in that country and develop that local market, or um, are they already so established uh, that it's better for us to hire uh, to acquire them? So um, we do consider those factors, and we are pretty flexible in, in our approach. Um, to be honest, we have done about uh, 50, 60 acquisitions so far. Uh, many of them are small. Uh, CMC is by far the largest one. Um, and so we're, still, we, we're kind of st- still learning the ropes, to be honest. Final question. I mean, I, I, could, um, I could talk to you all day, but um, I want to be respectful of your time. So the final question really is, where do you see the industry evolving next? A lot of people are saying IEOs are dead. Obviously, the markets have had a pretty significant uh, correction. And certainly when I speak to the wider investor ecosystem, crypto projects have become a bit of a dirty word. A lot of projects are now reverting to raising money through equity in the early stages. Do you, do you see, in the, firstly, do you believe IOs are dead? Do you see that they're going to evolve into something else? How, how do you see that landscape evolving? Uh, sure. Um, I, I don't think IOs are dead. Um, right now, my view is we, we, well, Binance will continue to do it, but I, I typically use a broader broader term. Um, I would call blockchain fundraising. Um, I think raising money on the blockchain uh, is a killer app. Um, this is this is a feature, but this is one of the uh, apps that blockchain cryptocurrencies bring to uh, our civilization now um, that we did not have before. So before, um, well, like if you look 50 years ago, you have to if you want to start a business, you got to borrow money from the bank, and the banks are very conservative. And then uh, maybe 20 years ago, we have VCs and stuff like that. And uh, but VCs uh, have a specific structure that in a lot of times are det- detrimental to businesses. Uh, VCs, um, they have a fund. The fund is usually a five-year, eight-year term. Um, they will need to raise a second ter- fund. They need to cash out. They need to show returns. So most VCs, not all VCs, but most VCs are money-driven, uh, even though a lot of them claim. Some of, some of them are real, like mission-driven. They want to help entrepreneurs and stuff like that. But uh, most VCs are not, are not entrepreneurs and they, uh, they have a calculator in, in their head or in their pocket. So um, uh, at different times, the founder gets overly diluted and then they lose their say. Um, they, so we know, we know the whole story. And the founders want to, uh, well, the VCs want to successively runs until an IPO or et cetera. They want to cash out. Um, so there's a lot, and as a founder, they actually spend a lot of time in those, uh, especially most CEOs spend a lot of time dealing with those type of issues where they don't, those time could be spent on product. So as before, when we were discussing, say, look, um, after an IEO or ICO, you're running a somewhat of a public company, you, you, have, to, you, have, to more, you have to be more transparent, you have to, uh, you have to spread more information. But um, um, I think that time is actually less, like the amount of time I spend on Twitter is much less than uh, what I would have, have to spend with uh, investors, et cetera. And, um, uh, and also more importantly, blockchain uh, fundraising allows people to raise money from globally now. So uh, if you have an idea that you want to do a business and you can find people who are interested in you globally, and they are, re- they are mostly retail investors, to be honest. They, they could invest like, I don't know, $500, uh, five bucks uh, or $5 million. 
So um, you have a spectrum of them, and this allows you to reach around the world, whereas the negotiation table is very much changed. Um, I think uh, markets go through cycles, right? So 2017 was too hot. Uh, anybody with a, with, with a piece of paper can raise millions of dollars. That's, that's not right. Uh, now, maybe we're probably overcorrecting to the bottom a bit too much. Um, but we've seen this kind of cycles in the internet days as well. Um, I, like 1998, 90, very easy to raise money because um, Yahoo, eBay, um, they all do really well. And then 98 is really easy to raise money. Um, 2000, 2001 is really hard to make money, uh, to raise money. So we've seen those kind of cycles as, as well. So um, I think right now we're, we're, we're in the early days of this um, uh, industry. So we see these cycles as well. But I think blockchain fundraising will stay. Uh, and I believe this one, of the, especially having gone through uh, this cycle myself um, and having gone through this process myself, I think raising money on the blockchain is so much better than raising money through VCs. It's so much simpler. You have less legal work. You have less, uh, um, you have less sort of, uh, uh, restrictions on you. And if you're a strong founder, then you can execute better. If you're a weak founder, then you need those structures to help you. Um, but um, that's your weakness. Uh, but if you're a strong founder, I do believe that blockchain fundraising is so much better. And But blockchain fundraising, over, for the larger industry, blockchain fundraising is only one of the apps. The cryptocurrency does so much more uh, with the quantitative easing, with a lot of money, unlimited amount of money being printed, um, with uh, restrictions on transferring money across borders, uh, remittances. All of these uh, uh, problems can be solved uh, by to a very large degree uh, by with cryptocurrencies. So uh, I think there's so much more to grow. Um, well, if I don't believe that, I wouldn't be spending my time in this industry. So yeah, I mean, one one of my big concerns is. So I mean, I believe I also share that opinion that the the power of tokens and, and crypto is kind of an extension of the principles of crowdfunding. One of my big concerns is that for all the things that you could complain about ICOs, one of the things that they did do was finance a lot of open source technology that would have otherwise been proprietary. Um, and that's really allowed us to have this kind of public goods and, and infrastructure that's going to make lots more things possible. Look, CZ, uh, I, I want to uh, thank you for your time, uh, all the work you're doing in, in driving forward the industry. And I'd love to get you back on in, in a year's time. I'm sure the world will have changed significantly and I'm sure Binance is, is going to be going great guns even though. Sure, absolutely. I'll be, I'll be very happy to, to I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks very much, CZ. Yeah, thank you so much, Jamie. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.